Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Though the topic of immigration has been controversial throughout much of our nation's history, there is no denying how much immigrants have added to American culture. In our ongoing series, Culture Crash, today we'll hear from director Adam Copeland about the origins of Marvel Comics and how Captain America has been misrepresented by agitators in recent months. First, with years of experience as one of Atlanta's Favorite radio hosts, Merritt Davis understands the power of the spoken word. Lately, she's been immersed in podcasts on a wide range of topics and wrote an article for Paste Magazine on the 10 most binge-worthy podcasts. She joins us now via Zoom. Mara, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, Lois. It's always so great to join you. Likewise, what are the elements of a great podcast? Well, the medium to me is so fascinating because it's as intimate like radio is between you and I. Most people listen to radio or podcasts by themselves. So when you are completely gripped by a podcast, whether it be the host, whether it be the storyline, whether it excites you, it moves you, it informs you, it can really take you on an incredible journey. And I believe over the past couple of years, what podcasts have done for the spoken word and documentaries and uh, so many different things, interview shows, it's just been spectacular. So what makes a good podcast was the subject of my article was a great binge-worthy one, as in if you have a great show you love on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon where you just want to be like, go to the next one, go to the next one, go to the next one, uh, it's, it can be the same thing with a, an amazing podcast. Now, you co-host a podcast, Vote Her, that's spelled V-O-T-E, capital H-E-R, that has this fantastic description 
Jen Jordan and Mary Davis talk Georgia politics with a side of snark and Southern sass. <laughs> well, I would be the snark and Senator <laughs> Jordan would be the Southern sass. You know, it's, it's such a, a fun thing that we came together on. Senator Jordan and I actually met on Twitter. I became fascinated with her after HB 41, that restrictive abortion bill from a couple of years ago, and she had a speech that went viral. And I was so enamored by her. And so I reached out to her personally. I mean, these are one of the good things about social media. So I reached out to her and I was like, I just think you're awesome. And then we became friends on Twitter. And then one of her friends suggested that we do a podcast together. And I was like, I'm totally game. So we started talking and talking, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know that a senator is going to let me ask dumb questions all day long. And we felt that, okay, let's try this for six episodes during the pandemic. And now we're up to about 24 episodes, and we talk about everything Georgia politics, and we have Democrats and Republicans on the show it is not a gotcha kind of show. It is two women discussing politics and getting sassy about it. And she is fantastic. It is her first time podcasting as well. And we've both learned a lot, met a lot of great people, and have really found it's such a, a, a great platform uh, to talk about new ideas. Well, you're being modest. The two of you have been quite influential with this. You're nice to say that. I think that with every listener, it's, it's the funny thing about podcast, Lois, and I know you must feel this way being in broadcasting for so long. When someone reaches out to you with feedback, it, it really does mean a lot, even if it's bad, uh, that somebody took the time <laughs> to reach out. But I feel like it's even more so with podcasts because someone has to go really out of their way to download and take the time to listen to your podcast. So yes, we both have followings, but it is a completely new show that we started out of nowhere. So we're both really, really into it. I love the attention. Jen is a little uh, shyer when it comes to attention, but you know me, if there's a mic or a camera, <laughs> I'm running towards it. <laughs> Jen actually wants to do the work because she's a state senator. Oh, well, I think it's been delightful for those of us who've been fans and followed you for many years because we know about your passion for music and food and all things pop culture. But this is a new side of you, at least one recently revealed in your interest in politics, Mara. I think it was always there, Lois, but it, working in commercial radio, uh, I was always kind of held back from doing it. And social media opened the door for it. And as we know, and this could be a, looked at as a good thing or, or a negative thing, that politics has become more pop culture, especially here in Georgia for the past, you know, in the presidential and then, of course, the Senate runoff. And it seemed like it was just in the pop culture universe. So I have become interested in, and I've learned a lot as in votes really matter and getting to know your elected officials can actually make change. And I also like conversations with people. I love to pe talk to people 
that I disagree with. A great example is someone who's on Political Breakfast on WABE with Dennis O'Hare, like Brian Robinson. I find him fascinating and I disagree with him on so many things, but I love engaging in conversations with him. And, and so I want to get back to that place. And that's why he's been on our podcast. But yet we've had Andrew Yang on our podcast and we've had Blair Erskine, the comedian, our, on our podcast too. So it's, it's just fun to exchange ideas. And I do think politics has become more common in everyday conversation. And hopefully we can get back to a place where we can have a, a hearty, spirited conversation and hug it out um, or six feet apart, hug it out in the end. <laughs> Let's touch on a couple podcasts from your Paste article, starting with Catch and Kill. Well, I read Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill when it came out, and that's all about how publications will kill a story, uh, which is what happens with the Harvey Weinstein story. And it's interesting because Ronan Farrow now very much in the news again with the new documentary, um, uh, Allen versus Farrow, that's on HBO Max. And, and of course, so Ronan Farrow is very close to victims of sexual assault. So when Catch and Kill came out with the Harvey Weinstein, it really examines how uh, NBC killed a lot of the stories that he was working on about Harvey Weinstein. And if you read the book, you got in the detail, but you don't need to read the book for the podcast. He interviews the victims. He interviews people that worked for NBC News. And so you really get the backstory of how the Harvey Weinstein story emerged and started the Me Too movement. And Ronan Farrow is a great interviewer. And when you, it's one thing when you're reading the book and you, you know, you see all the salacious details, but again, back to a podcast, it feels very intimate, like, whoa, you're on a, a fly on the wall in the most deep, uncomfortable conversations, but you're really learning how it all unfolded. Also on your list, Rabbit Hole, another recommendation that's very intriguing. I loved Rabbit Hole, especially now, as we all saw what unfolded on January 6th at the Capitol with the insurrection. Rabbit Hole takes us through a journey of radicalization on the internet, mostly with YouTube and YouTube algorithms and how people find YouTube stars and how people could be attracted to QAnon theories and cat videos. So it is very interesting. <laughs> and, and I pair this with Lisa Hagen from WABE and her partner, Chris Haxel. Their excellent podcast, No Compromise, is all about extreme gun groups. And that really touches on how the internet radicalizes people. So if you see these images, you wonder, like, how does this happen? And again, I think podcasts really take you behind the curtain. You really feel like you're a fly on the wall. And with these docu-series, with these incredible journalists like Lisa Hagen, uh, she's brave enough to go into these rallies and be able to talk to people who are on the forefront of it all. So I have mad respect for people like that. There is a new podcast that is so exciting, Renegades, with former President Obama and none other than Bruce Springsteen. 
Mara, I often think about your photograph with President Obama. Do you still have that? Is that what comes up on your Twitter? Yes. I do have that photo. I'm looking at it right now. And to someone who has never seen it, imagine that. Would you describe it? Well, let me just, I'll give you the short version. I had a chance to go to a White House event a couple of years ago, and I was told ahead of time what it was going to be like when you go down the line to meet the president. And they say, you know, you're going to have 60 seconds, you're going to shake a hand, they're going to take a photo, and they're going to move you on to the next person. So my dear friend, Yvonne Monet, which some people may know from the radio, said, I I watched her say this to other people, so I said this to President Obama at the time. I said, President Obama, it is so nice to meet you. Listen, uh, can you smile like I said the funniest thing you've ever heard so I can get a great picture so I can have this forever? (laughs) And he thought that was hilarious. And he did it. He did it. And there you go. I have the picture. And it, it's it's really fun. And, you know, you don't get to take it with your phone. It's an official White House photographer that does it. Oh. And then it's mailed to you, I think, like a month or six weeks later. So I remember when I got it, I was just like, oh, my God, this is hysterical. Uh, but it just goes to show what a... Um, you know, personable guy President Obama is. And that's why this Spotify podcast, which is really, really interesting, Lois, how Spotify has really come on uh, strong with the podcast game with two icons, uh, President Obama, Bruce Springsteen, and, and, and they're in Springsteen's guitar barn. I know. They're talking about everything but it it opens up which this is the part that i really love they're talking about like having dinner together and drinking wine and michelle obama and patty Siop are our friends and you're like wait what so it is it's 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 produced beautifully and again it just goes to show you how podcasts are really here to stay and if you're getting two of the most famous people in america in this conversation medium, there's a lot more great stuff to come. I love how it opens with President Obama just distilling the situation. How did we get here? How could we find our way back to a more unifying story? What comes out is this shared sensibility he has with Springsteen and I think it was a campaign rally where he addressed the crowd and said, I decided to run for president when I realized I couldn't be Bruce Springsteen. Did I remember (laughs) that correctly? So, yeah, it, it is produced. It does have those great elements. But the essence is this wonderful conversation between two brilliant people and their shared sensibility. Well, I think that's the beauty of, of podcasts now that, that obviously that long form terrestrial radio, with the exception of, of public radio, NPR, you can have a long form interview with somebody that is really, really revealing. And it's very hard to get an interview with anybody in five minutes when someone has the chance to sit down 
and have a deep conversation. And I look forward to seeing where, where that goes with that podcast. But I mean, my gosh, Lois, there's so many more great interview podcasts where it's it's just, you know, you're like, it can be very revealing and entertaining and they're here to stay. Well, I always enjoy sitting down with you for a lengthy discussion and Same. deep thoughts going into it. Mara Davis, thank you very much. Thanks, Lois. Atlanta's media maven, Mara Davis. Her new podcast, Vote Her, can be found on Stitcher and Apple Podcast. You can find the list of Mara's suggestions on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. In early January, pop culture and politics collided in an unsavory way for Neil Kirby. He is the son of the illustrator Jack Kirby, who, along with his artistic partner Joe Simon, created the Captain America comics in 1941. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company joins us now for the latest in our series, Culture Crash. Adam, welcome back. Lois, as always, it's so good to be here. So would you unpack what happened with the statement from Neil Kirby after the Capitol riots and the insurrection? Absolutely. So like many of us, Neil Kirby, the son of the comic book great Jack Kirby, was watching what had unfolded in D.C. And he saw, you know, images on the screen of some of these rioters holding a Captain America shield. Now, Captain America is a Marvel comic books character that's still very much an icon and has been for pretty much since his creation. The shield is widely recognized and immediately Kirby was sickened because the context in which his father had created Captain America was so different than what he was seeing on the screen. He, he, he wrote while watching one of the horrific videos of the storming of the Capitol, I thought I noticed someone in a Trump Captain America t-shirt. I was appalled and mortified. I believe I even caught a quick glance of someone with a Captain America shield. And he goes on to talk about how the rioting was the absolute antithesis of what his grandfather felt that the Captain America 
character stood for. So I thought it'd be an interesting opportunity for us to talk about the birth of Captain America and where the authors and illustrators were coming from and the context of Captain America's creation. And then of course, how things get used over time. So where do we begin? Jack Kirby, the creator of Captain America was born Jacob Kurtzberg and was born of Austrian Jewish descent in lived in poverty in New York City, lived on the Lower East Side. Uh, he lived on Essex Street in a cramped apartment. And by the time he was 14, he needed to fend for himself in terms of making money and started, he always had a talent with drawing and was inspired by the newspaper style cartoons. And he started making cartoons that led into a certain kind of art. And before long, he was hired by comic book companies. And he started partnering with a, a fellow by the name of Joe Simon, who was born Jaime Simon, a similar background. And the two of them were working for a company called Timely Comics. Now, let's remember that in the late 30s, early 40s, there were passionate feelings about how involved the, the world had gone to war, but America was not yet in it. And there were passionate feelings about whether or not the uh, America was going to join the fight. And as a general rule, uh, folks, New York Jews tended to be very passionately, let's get into this fight and protect the world, protect democracy. And they were totally aware of what Hitler was up to. So the these young men were drawing comics, but they also, they felt that the patriotism was in the air in a general sense, and that they also wanted, I mean, I, I don't think they would have used the word activism, but they wanted to agitate a little bit and do anything they could to push America towards joining the effort. And Simon had the idea of doing something like this, of a super soldier who fights against the Nazi tyranny. And um, the, uh, they came up with the idea. He pitched it to Timely Comics. Timely Comics loved it. In fact, they were going to hire two other artists because Jack Kirby seemed to have so much on his plate. But Kirby insisted, it, it, he felt so strongly that he'd be part of this effort that he, he pulled all-nighters and said he would do it. And he, they put it into the mix. And in late 1940, though the cover says March 1941, in late 1940 is when the first episode of Captain America appeared. And the cover famously has Captain America punching Hitler in the jaw. And they even they weren't prepared for how crazily popular this image of a almost a Uncle Sam level kind of the flag put into costume form person punching Hitler would be. It Lois, it sold a million copies, which is, you know, was huge at that time. A million copies to the comic book. So the first part of the story is that it was this huge success. The second part of the story is also that there wasn't, even in 1940, 
total national consensus about Hitler or what we should do. And as popular as it was, it also inspired a bunch of negative feelings, so much so that Kirby and Simon reported that menacing groups would pull up in the streets outside of the timely comic book offices. They got a giant piles of hate mail in a way they'd never gotten before. And it, it got uh, heated enough that there were a couple of days there that they were assigned pol a police protection and Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia himself called them up both to congratulate them on their success as well as reinforce that he was supporting what they were up to and that the police would protect them. Hmm. So how do we go from this pure artistic rendering of patriotism and triumph over evil foes to the capital insurrection? Well, you know, it's a great question. I think that even at the beginning, what people felt that the flag symbolized and what patriotism meant didn't have consistency. Looking at the, even at the time it was published, the overwhelming popularity of Captain America against the creators needing police protection for a hot second because there were people against it. I think it, it just goes to show, we've talked before in Culture Crash, how we think of things as having this pure meaning, but even at the beginning, there was this disagreement about what, what the flag meant, what patriotism meant, et cetera. And then in every era, the comic books authors of Captain America have tried to represent the character as for the underdog, for the spirit of a, a certain kind of fighting for what's right, for what's good. And I, I believe that what happens is a lot of people feel that they're doing that even if the meaning is has become twisted over time. So again, Kurtzberg, AKA Kirby and Simon, the context that they were coming from was that patriotism meant support, supporting immigrants and the, the culture of immigration and anybody who comes here and is gonna work hard is, is got, should have a great shot. And that Kirby believed so much in that, that uh, enlisted and saw action. He, he went to France, fought for the allied forces, saw heavy action, had to come home after he got horrible trench foot and barely left France with his legs. So this, this was near and dear to his heart and spent the rest of his life picturing the action that he saw in France and um, redrawing it, retalking about it. And his kids said when he would have nightmares or dreams at night, it was almost always about his time fighting the Germans in France. And so for him, patriotism meant, even if you have to do it as a soldier, standing up and fighting against this kind of what he saw as Nazi evil. And now flash forward to today, I think the family was horrified that what they, well, a lot of the folks who stormed the Capitol may have seen themselves as patriots and that's why they co-opted Captain America. 
I think the tone of nativism that that riot had was the particular thing that horrified the Kirby family because it's the exact opposite of what Kurtzberg and Simon were creating Captain America for. So this idea of patriotism equals nativism is, is very different than patriotism equals embrace of Americans as immigrants and people who work hard to turn their lives into something better here in the U.S., which is what it was for Simon and Kurtzberg. It's really a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. And what you were talking about, another group co-opting a symbol, gets very complicated because, indeed, we're entitled to have different interpretations. Part of the glory of democracy is free speech. But there are other examples much earlier and not a visual representation, but the Nazi perversion of Beethoven's music, the slow movement from his Seventh Symphony, was sort of championed as a death march during the years of the concentration camps. And the idea that Beethoven, this great liberal thinker of the Age of Enlightenment, who believed in the unity of all humankind, should be perverted and used for such horrific reasons. It would have been unthinkable to the composer had he been around, I guess similarly, Nietzsche's philosophy was seized upon, and they didn't quite, the Nazis did not quite get that right either. So what do you do when, when something artistic is co-opted for the wrong reasons? That question pops very much to the forefront of upcoming documentary called Feels Good Man, which is about this fellow named Matt Fury, who created something, uh, a character named Pepe the Frog. And Pepe the Frog has a kind of um, laid back frog face or head and a human body. And Fury created him as a kind of a a slacker, partier, have have a fun time kind of a frog. It's meant as a comic creation. And it was very popular. Um, and then around 2016, and again, just to kind of indicate the character that Pepe the Frog is supposed to be, it's 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 kind of it's he's meant to be a juvenile character and Matt. Fury said that the reason he chose Pepe is because it sounded a bit like pee-pee. You know, it's it's really a juvenile thing. And but funny, harmless, not a not a big deal. This character's face started to become the preferred avatar of the alt-right. So much so that it was so ubiquitous as somebody's little face on a chat room or on a t-shirt or on a bumper sticker 
that it lost total connection to what he had done as a creation. And he became completely dismayed over time because, you know, it, it is as though he drew something that he had not or created a character for reasons that he had not. And at first, I think he had a more gentle feeling. You know, we were talking earlier about it's sort of natural that once an artist creates something and it gets out there, that lots of people are going to have different responses to it, think about it in different ways and use it in different ways. And that's to the good. That's part of, you know, if, if our series of culture crashes about anything, it's about people remixing artistic ideas. I, and I think all of us would celebrate that. It's when that those, the, there seems to be this line where when the idea that the creator had gets perverted, when it gets used in a way that goes past eh, a little different than how I saw it originally to used for really negative ends that I think is a line a lot of these artists say is that's the line, that's their red line. You cross that, then we go to war because that is not at all what my creation stood for. So let's go back to the Marvel comics and just the past couple of years, a phenomenal success with Black Panther. No question. And, and interestingly, Lois, did you know that uh, Black Panther was also created by Jack Kirby? He was the original artist for Black Panther, and uh, he, along with Stan Lee in the 1960s, felt that Marvel needed to, that they've, Marvel's had a long history. Timely Comics, which published Captain America, ultimately became Marvel. Marvel has had a long history of championing the underdog. And in the 60s, they realized, much to their shame, that Black characters were underrepresented in comics, and they created Black Panther. Now, one of the things that's happened over time is Black Panther has become so popular that Black artists have started to say, you know, it was created by white characters, but we are going to remix, reframe, re-understand Black Panther and make sure that it's from a Black perspective. And so I think in a way, the remixing of Black Panther with artists like Reginald Reggie Hudland writing for the comic, Ta-Nehisi Coates writing for the comic, Ende Okaforo writing for the comic, then amazing directors like Ryan Coogler or amazing actors like Chadwick Boseman or amazing costume designers like Ruthie Carter creating costume design for the movie. These artists are really doing what we think of when we talk about the highest aspirations of Culture Crash. They're taking a piece of art and remixing it and bringing their own cultural background to it and doing it somehow in the broad spirit of the original artistic intent or creation. And so Black Panther created in the 60s, now a hugely iconic character today. And I think in many respects is the opposite of the use of the Captain America flag at the Capitol riot. It's, it's a positive remix building on and in the spirit of, and maybe even better than the spirit of the original intent. 
Adam Copeland, thank you so much for showing us how crashing can be a good thing. My great pleasure. Director Adam Copeland is the artistic director of Flying Carpet Theater Company. The Origins of Captain America is the third segment of our Culture Crash series. You can find the previous episodes on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last May, the Hammonds House Museum presented its first virtual exhibition, New Africans, a collaboration between the artists Maurice Evans and Grace Kisa. The focus was on female warriors and queens. Now, there's also the role of hairstyles and hair adornment that we see in art in the culture of ancient African civilizations. Would you talk about that? One of the things that Grace took from her childhood was the wrapping of the Mm -hmm. hair. Yes. So the threaded styles were really popular when I was a little girl in the 70s in Kenya and Ethiopia. So people would wear their hair in sculptural forms. And I would look at those styles. We were too young. My mother told us that we were too young to get those done. But I grew up watching women with these beautiful sculptural threaded styles that were truly fine art to me. And I've never forgotten it. So once this came about when I was thinking about styling and how we were trying to situate our models in the future, to me, those styles were futuristic, even though they were uh, traditional. And so that's what I used as a, as a way of signifying these, these queens this way. Grace, you had quite the international upbringing. You were born in Nairobi, Kenya, and spent time in Ethiopia, Botswana, and Canada, later settling here. How did your experiences growing up in these countries inform your work? The experiences of being, and uh, there is a term for it called third culture kid, is that when you, when I'll say me and my sisters traveled from place to place, we always took something from the place that we came from and tried to find what was familiar in the new place. Sometimes we didn't, and we incorporated what was from the new place. We incorporated that into our experience and, and our identity and how we expressed ourselves. And where we found commonalities was from other people who were also othered from the places that they were born and were having the same experiences as we were in the United States. In Ethiopia, we went to an American international school. So we had a taste of American culture before we even came to the U.S. Even in nursery school in Nairobi, my nursery school picture has children from all over the world. So it was always a cosmopolitan international experience and we always carry that with us. So it's expressed definitely in the work that I do. Do you feel less othered here? I don't. (laughs) The places where I feel less othered is among othered people. (laughs) So a lot of people who are uh, immigrants, military kids, people who worked in the foreign service, people who are stationed in other countries and grew up 
all over the place. So we find home among each other. Artists Grace Kisa and Maurice Evans discussing their past Hammond's House exhibition, New Africans. You can see photos from that exhibit on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. When it comes to costume design, Ruth E. Carter is a rock star. She has been Spike Lee's go-to costume designer since 1988, having worked on 14 of his films. Carter has collaborated with several of today's most acclaimed directors, and in 2019, she became the first black woman to receive an Academy Award for Best Costume Design, that for her work on the movie Black Panther. Her artistry is the focus of a new exhibition, Ruth E. Carter, Afrofuturism in Costume Design, on view now at Scat Fash Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta. Also featured in the exhibition is artwork of SCAD alumnus and Atlanta-based artist Brandon Sadler, who worked on the Black Panther scenic art. It is such a pleasure to welcome Ruth E. Carter and Brandon Sadler. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Oh, such a treat. Ruth, I read that you originally wanted to pursue acting in college. What led you to switch to costume design? Well, uh, costume design was the consolation prize. I didn't make an audition at in college for a play I wanted to be uh, acting in. And so the director of the play asked me if I wanted to try and my hand at uh, costuming. And I said yes, and it stuck. Well, the rest is history. And in fact, you made history. You won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design in Black Panther. When did your interest in Afrofuturism design begin? I believe uh, wholeheartedly that uh, as a filmmaker working with Spike Lee, we were embodying our Afro future. When I think of uh, Spike Lee or Ava DuVernay on their sets directing their stories about uh, African-American history and having purpose and telling an authentic story it's telling a, a story of Afro future. They are experiencing their personal Afro future and they're, they're looking to better the lives of, of a culture and tell stories that are you know, more rooted in authenticity than have been told before. And by the time we get to Black Panther and we're able to take hard science and infuse it in, into African culture and tribal culture and uh, retrain the viewer's eye to see beauty in things that they were a little afraid or shy about and to bring that right home with a superhero. 
that they all could aspire to be like. It was the culmination of my entire life's work. Wow. And you had quite a bit of impressive work. How many films in total are to your credit? I have not counted. IMDb says 65, but I can't believe I've done that many. Oh, wow. Now, Brandon, you also have a special connection to Black Panther. Would you talk about your contribution to the film? Uh, Yes, I was hired to do some murals for the set. There's a character, um, Shuri, she's uh, T'Challa's sister. And in her laboratory, she's a scientist and she has this tower and I've decorated the the facade of the tower and and some peripheral pieces around in in the laboratory. And Ruth, I read that that was a particular favorite of yours on the set. Yes, uh, Hannah Beekler, who was the production designer, she came over to our workshop at uh, Screen Gems, and she said, Ruth, you've got to come and see this mural that this artist, Brandon Sadler, did. And I saw it, and I just thought it was just beautiful, and it really spoke to the spirit of Shuri and the spirit of the film and um, I had designed this bright orange vest for her to wear and in that setting and it just was like kismet we all were on the same page and I I, you know Brandon at that time he doesn't even know he's so shy about it I was like (laughs) A superhero, you like helped me sell that vest to the producers. You don't even realize it. Oh, wow. I, you know, I was so excited to meet Brandon. And when I finally did, I felt like he was a little brother. I have brothers who paint. And so watching him paint on, you know, the set was thrilling to see. Oh, the whole family's artistic then. Well, they all think they are. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the costumes in Black Panther. Ruth, how did you approach making the costumes true to the Afrofuturistic style as well as breathable and easy for the actors to move in? There are a lot of fight scenes in that movie. Yeah, well, superhero films have a formula and they do start with Euro Jersey and it's a four-way stretch material that allows you to create a skin-tight suit that will also move and breathe. There's a lot of techniques involved that uh, include technology and I just push the needle. Um, I brought fashion into the Marvel Universe in a different way with Black Panther. And I love fashion and I love I love incorporating true style into the costumes. And so I'm always looking for ways to move us forward and bring in technology that's innovative from the fashion industry. Yeah. Brandon, what can you tell us about the artwork you created for this show? How would you describe this exhibition of your works? When Ruth was talking about the vest that uh, kind of matched up with what I did on the set, I kind of, I feel like in my work, I approach it like on, on an intuitive level and it seems like it uh, it matches up with whatever it is that I'm collaborating with or the project has a, a greater whole. And so with Ruth's movies that she worked for, like each costume has a specific genre and a a time period. So I just kind of 
took the mask that I did for Black Panther and, you know, for Do the Right Thing, like I kind of gave him an 80s vibe, you know, just with the the way the expressions were and kind of some of the the mark making and then moving on to Dolomite just made those more like 70s and had like a, a funky approach to those and kind of made them feel like they went with that setting. And so, oh, that felt very authentic. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate stuff like that. Like when you can go through a, an experience where every individual stands alone, but all of them come together and kind of create the story and there's no piece that is missing, you know, like they all kind of relate. I enjoy that. Ruth, what are some of your favorite costumes featured in this exhibition? Oh, I have, uh, I, I walk through the exhibition and I have lots of memories. And so they're all my children, so I can't really pick a favorite. But with the exhibition itself, there are, there are highlights, like uh, the hand-painted T-shirt that Radio Rahim wore in Do the Right Thing. You know, it just reminds me of the creativity in Brooklyn and, you know, the the cultural Afro culture that is alive and well in Brooklyn, especially when I was there doing that film. And then as we travel through, I, you know, see a lot of tidbits of things that I added to, you know, uh, costumes to tell a family story. The indigo blue of Kunta Kente's costume just, you know, reminds me of, you know, how we harvested uh, indigo in Africa and telling that story and keeping that blue as a through line throughout all the costumes and roots and and having dressed Anna Paquin for Amistad when she was, you know, 13 and then also having another dress when she's 40 years old in Roots. It's uh, a connection of, you know, me having, you know, generations in my work and, and, you know, people who have become a part of my film family and Oprah, uh, you know, Oprah as an actress, you know, really trusting me and, you know, giving me the opportunity to dress her character, not only in Selma, but also in the Butler and, and to have those here representing, you know, her costume. They all become a part of some of my favorite stories. Oh, I'll bet. I am in awe of her. When you start to make a costume for a film, how much creative freedom do you have? Well, I always say I don't want to be on my own island when I'm designing costumes. It's a highly collaborative work, but sometimes I walk into a room and I have Black Panther pasted on my forehead or I have Oscar winner, you know, as I walk in and people go, you know, what do you think, Ruth? And I go, let's collectively talk about it. Let's be uh, together because my costume goes on a set. It's lit, lit by a DP. There are a lot of uh, factors to making this a successful costume. So that I'm not dictated to per se because people think, you know, people want me to bring ideas to the table and, and have the freedom to be an artist. But, you know, we are collaborating. So I have to listen to what the director wants for the storytelling. Okay, so the director sets forth the parameters. Yes, he sets the tone that everybody collaborates on to accomplish it. Okay. What advice would you give young African-American 
costume designers in particular, trying to forge their own path in this industry. I have a story I tell. Um, I met an editor who was uh, the one of the youngest editors to ever win an Oscar for one of his projects. And I met him and I said, you know, you know, very early in my career, like at the very beginning. And I said, you know, how, how does it feel? My God. And he said, just keep going and you'll get one too. Aww. So that's my advice. Just keep going. The Academy Award winning costume designer, Ruth E. Carter. She was joined by SCAD alumnus and Atlanta-based artist, Brandon Sattler. Afrofuturism in costume design is on view at Scott Fash Museum of Fashion and Film through September. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can follow us on Facebook as well at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.